The following podcast is set in a quarantine New York City. As such, some of the language and much of the content is intended for mature audiences. Consider yourself warned. You are listening to the confessions of Conrad Patrick McGowan, former governor of the Lower Downtown. Texts to these confessions are also on display in the lobbies of Stuyvesant Town, buildings 7 and 9. McGowan stands accused of conspiring with the Protective Custody Agency and being an instrumental player in luring our brethren into the repatriation massacre. He has chosen to remain in the quarantine to plead his case, but has been stripped of his citizenship. The squatters, you are his judge and jury, and he awaits your verdict. Banishment, beheading, or restoration are your options. Welcome back to New York City. Population 107,363. This is the decline and fall of all y'all. Episode 2 And so here I am, friends, and here is my explanation. My name is Conrad Patrick McGowan, and these are my confessions. They've been ordered by the provisional government and will be put in the lobbies of buildings 7 and 9 in Stuyvesant Town so the public can render its verdict. By public, I mean you, so listen up, my fate is in your hands. Pardon me, and I'll be let back into the general population. Show me no mercy, and I'll be escorted to the Hudson Tunnel and pushed out the other side. I'll either have to make a go of it in the no-man's land of Jersey City, or turn myself into the repatriation center in Newark. Then again, I might receive an even stiffer punishment, a noose around my neck, and my heft bending a branch in Central Park left out for the birds of New York to edit. And lastly, my fellow squatters, let the equivocation begin. I need a lot of runway to get this confession off the ground, because it's really not a confession at all. These pages are my defense. And I may be guilty as hell, I may be guilty above and beyond all humans, and I may be guiltier than you, but I'm not guilty of the act which I stand accused. For those of you who do not know my background, before the quarantine, I owned two restaurants. One was rather fashionable. The other was really fashionable. The rather fashionable one was Coyote Bistro on 13th Street in Gavinsport. We were forced to close it when the Meatpacking District sewers became permanently backed up due to the water scare, thanks to our dullard mayor at the time ordering the pipeline cut. 
that was the May before we were supposed the last exodus off the island, and there were still more than four million of us living in the city. Rent had at last come down so that you could swing a railroad flat for a mere 1400 and while there weren't many jobs to be had, unemployment benefits had to be extended indefinitely. My other restaurant, The Pool, was undeniably the spot to gawk and stayed open right through the eve of the last exodus. This despite the fact that it was all the way downtown on Leonard Street, a half a mile north of the containment zone. Right to the bitter end, the pool was a great place to ogle and to be ogled as all around boarded up became the architectural statement of the day. This, of course, was after the collapse of the Times Square subway station. This was after the municipal bonds tanked, which forced the city to declare bankruptcy, and after the aforementioned water scare, which was baseless but nonetheless prompted the exodus of two million, the double contamination bombing of Wall Street two months earlier had led to a widespread panic, which then led to martial law, which led to the Easter Revolt, which led to that evening at the pool drinking martinis and making plans. Come morning, we would either walk off or be forcibly evicted off the Isle of Manhattan. And this was why I was swilling martinis with the same determination as my customers. I got drunk listening to my patrons swear romantic oaths that they would never, ever give up the ship. The next morning, the bridges and tunnels were choked with the last of the refugees, the final group to give up the ship, the almost rands. All of them put into motion from an accumulation of real and fabricated threats. The latter created the former, and I was supposed to be one of those refugees. I had a bag packed and waiting for me by the door. Just before noon that morning, I woke up in my Mercer Street loft, stumbled into the main space, saw the suitcases, and then something came over me. Or rather, something did not come over me. I didn't feel fear. I didn't feel excitement. It wasn't quite apathy exactly. It was complacency. The feeling that this morning was just another in a long line of Manhattan mornings. Abandoning New York City, the wheel of fortune that lifted me from a short order cook to a swank restaurateur in a rapid 15 years, simply did not feel right. Fleeing felt like a life decision, and I wasn't in the fucking mood for one. Maybe if I downed my morning coffee, it would have cleared my head and I would have gone into flea mode, but I was hungover and the prospect of getting caught in a crowd turned my stomach. In any case, like you, I elected to stay. An hour later, tanks rolled down Broadway with the speakers strapped to their roofs. The squawk of the mechanical voice was so unnerving I considered making a last dash off the island. Spray was pumped out of gasoline trucks marked lesion line markers, a sight that nearly set me in flight as well. But when the vapors floated to my third floor windows, I reached to the outside of the glass and swabbed it for a sample. What was it? Fucking water, my friends. These men with their full biohaz sealed suits were disinfecting the city with fucking water. This was the final insult. After that, there was no turning back for me. You can run me off with distant explosions. You can whip up the rabble and I'll hightail it the other way. I'm not brave. I'm not looking for the shit. 
but no one pushes me around with gently wafting water vapor. Soon after, the agent in full black battle gear came down Green Street to flush out the resistors. I hid in my walk-in closet and listened to the sound of my own breath for a few hours. That was the week of sounds. The clank of tank gears changing directions, crawling like sloths on their hunt for the strays. That's what the soldiers called us. Thunder left in the wake of low-flying jets, and always the chop and swoosh of the black choppers that examined the city block by block like an angry swarm of hornets. I mostly stayed on the roof, ducking under the water tower when the hornets came overhead, belly down, going to the roof edge, sticking my head over the side, straining to get the soldier in full battle gear on the street below. Fucking graveyard, I heard one of them say once. You should see the morgue on 14th. These fucking strays. What are they staying for? I have no idea what these soldiers were talking about. There's no record of anything like a morgue on 14th. Not even a makeshift one. One morning, I watched as they caught a stray scurrying across Spring Street. They threw him in the back of a troop transport filled with other strays. How tragic is that? He tasted the future, the first flowers of a city, the sparsely populated city where anything would once again be possible but he didn't even make it to the status of a squatter, forced into repatriation during the first days of the quarantine. On the eighth day, when the city's power was cut, and it had been two full days since I'd seen anything continental, no choppers, no armed transports, we came out of our building. I faced the empty streets, the loft buildings with curtains blowing out of the open windows and the odor of rotten meat drifting through the delis. Some of the abandoned cars were parked neatly next to meters. Others were in intersections with their crushed bumpers kissing. Silhouettes moved in the distance, sometimes in small packs, but mostly solo. If I got close enough, I could make out the looks of them, but whoever it was usually ran back into the cover of the building. After all, anyone could be an agent of repatriation, and I might have looked as likely to arrest them as commiserate or swap information. Shadows moved into the doorways, haunted faces watched from the high floors. These shadows were the first sign of others like myself. Not strays anymore, but squatters. 107,363 of us, according to the first and only count. Though there were probably thousands more who were not or did not want to be counted. In the months that followed, we came together, strays no more. A vague currency was established, a combination of vinyl records, magazines, batteries, and bullets. I took a turn serving as the head of the sanitation committee, which basically meant overseeing the removal of decaying meat from abandoned bodegas, and became an early leader in our provisional government located on Roosevelt Island which was such a lax assembly that it got nicknamed GNG, or Government Non-Government. Two months in, tankers began coming into the harbor, docking in open water, huge hulking masses with German markings on the side. 
And there they sat over a week like ghost ships. The sight of them prompted another thousands to scurry into the Hudson Tunnel and repatriate themselves. But after nine days, an ambassador came ashore. It turned out that they were the advance guard of the newly formed Lenape Land Trust. This Frankfurt, Germany-based real estate company approached the ruined landowners of Manhattan and bought their mighty skyscrapers for pennies on the dollar. For those not so willing to sell, veiled threats were made. Perhaps once the Lenape's established operations, your building might meet with an accident, or at the very least, suffer from an aggressive negligence. Manhattan was, of course, the most highly speculative property purchase in the world. But the Lenape's believed that the quarantine wouldn't hold for the simple reason that the city never should have been put in quarantine. So all they had to do was sit on the property, keep it safe from fire, and reap the huge returns when the sheep would flock back to the Great Patch. It turned out their tankers were filled with fire trucks and armored transports, guns and bullets, and German mercenaries to keep the quarantine going. They also had something else, food and medicine, which was good because we were running out of both. They would aid our struggle to stay on the island, but 23rd up to 70th Street was officially their turf and could be crossed only with their special permission. I'd had a German girlfriend years back and spoke only a little, but it was still enough to get me on the committee to broker negotiations with the Lens. As a reward for my work in sanitation and with sizable bribes placed in the right GNG coffers, I was appointed governor of the lower downtown. My district was the area between Canal and 14th Street. I stayed governor for just over three years, and considering I knew it wasn't a real job, I did it well. And now, now I might be the most hated man in quarantine, which brings me back to my confession. All the troubles towards the end of the summer last year, the third one of the quarantine, it's forgotten now, but those months were the tail end of what the press called the great lull. Life had actually grown so dull that squatters began to trickle into the Hudson Tunnel for a repatriated future. Not out of fear of invasion or lack of food, but the opposite. Our life had become too comfy and the romance of scraping by was gone because Jesus, there's no point enduring crappy conditions if they aren't accompanied by momentous occasions. And so, at the beginning of my confessions, things were, if anything, too peaceful. Fancy that. Written and scored by Norm Cody and read by James G. Berry. This podcast is an unlimited liability production. For more information, visit declineandfall.us, where you will also find the soundtrack for the book recorded by the quarantine band Motorsoft. We love New York City. Long live New York City.